0: Our Easter reading comes from John 17, verses 24 through 26. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known, that the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. God. We have a great treat today, and no, for the kids in the room, I don't mean eggs filled with chocolate, at least not here, Um, not saying anything about later this afternoon. No, we get to celebrate uh, the sacrament of baptism together um, but before we do, I want to finish a text that we started actually on Thursday in John 17. Um, a group of us gathered here at the church to, uh, in the hopes to kind of enhance and kind of enrich your Easter experience by celebrating uh, what has traditionally been known as Monday Thursday, and it's the, kind of the inaugural Lord's Supper. And so we gathered together and we kind of studied John 17 together, and I'll give kind of a recap, so I apologize for people who are here, give a little bit of recap of what we studied and then finish the text this morning. Um, but we got to end at the table, and so today we get to end at baptism, two sacraments that Christ gives us. When you look at John 17, it's, it's been traditionally known as the high priestly prayer. But as I said on 13, when you look at Matthew 6, you have the Lord's Prayer, which has traditionally been known for the Lord's But if you actually look at the content of what you have in Matthew 16 and John 17, it makes more sense to call what has traditionally been known as the Lord's prayer really to be our prayer, is Jesus is teaching us how to pray. But in John 17, which is called the high priestly prayer, even though Jesus is our priest, that really is more Jesus's prayer for us. He is praying for his disciples as he is about to depart from them, um, which makes it something worth uh, us looking together in. So if you would pray with me before we dive into the text. Father, this morning we come and we come in ribbons and bows and curls and, and iron-pressed shirts and everything, and, uh, and, and Father, you came uh, simply. And so, Father, we do this as a celebration of all that was accomplished many, many years ago on our behalf on this day. And so, Father, we, we know that we cannot bring you uh, the blood of bulls or a sacrifice of anything. You want the sacrifice of a heart bent towards you. And, Father, in and of ourselves, we are unable to do that, and so we would even ask your help to bend our hearts towards you, to bend our ears that we may hear your word this morning, to bend our eyes to not just look at the temporal things in front of us, but the eternal things that you've set before us, that you'd bend our hands and our feet not to think of ourselves and act only for ourselves and our own good, but act for the good of others. So help us this morning, Father, to see you as you truly are, Lead us to worship you in spirit and truth as you've called us to. And we pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen. On Thursday, we answered three questions uh, that we kind of get from John 17. The first was this, why did Jesus have to die? And in the first portion of John 17, if you're there at all, you see the word glory over and over and over again. It's said over seven times in the entire prayer of John 17 probably not a word that we use a lot, we don't throw glory in, we're talking about is your day glorious today, or are are you feeling glorious, or anything like that, Um, but I don't want us to think, just because it's not in our vocabulary, that it's not something that we as a culture and individuals are not consumed by, so I went to the dictionary and I thought, okay, what are other words for the word glory, and see if any of these don't strike at the chord of your heart here, Name. Honor, fame, reputation, praise, celebrity, recognition, credit, greatness, beauty. If you're like me, when you hear those words, maybe glory doesn't strike a chord, but I've spent a lot of my life pursuing many of these things. When we ask the question, why did Jesus have to die? We first have to start that you were created to mirror the glory of God. But sin has come into the world and it's changed the way that we view the world and the way that we exist. And it says in Romans 1 that we exchange the glory of God for the creation. We exchange the glory of God for something else. And you ask, well, what is that? Really anything. We we will worship anything now. But all of these things cannot satisfy the way that God calls us to look to Him who, who enriches us and calls us. To, to pursue Him, and He promises that he, only He can satisfy us. Today we celebrate Jesus' death and resurrection, um, but we don't celebrate it in a general way, but more of a sp- specific way. So here's what I mean by that. The second question that we ask on Thursday was, why did Jesus have to die? He had to die in order for this glory to be repaired. The things and the way that we go, and we try to seek fulfillment in other things, but cannot... Jesus' death pays the penalty of death that we deserve to die. And by doing so, so he restores our break, broken relationship. He makes way, uh, a way for the people of God to get back to God. The second question we asked on Thursday, who did Jesus die for? And so the second part of John 17 in verses 6 through 12 really addresses Jesus' praying For this group of people, he's praying for these ones uh, that Jesus speaks of people that are gods, given to Christ out of the world, and guarded by Christ himself. Often in the church today, we've used the word elect. It's used in other places in scripture, but it, it, it refers to this group of people that were gods that are given over to Christ and are guarded by him, and we see that in this text. I want a picture just to help us get this illustration of who, who did Jesus die for on the cross on Friday as he, as he hung there. This image that we talked about on Thursday of someone dressed in the finest of clothes and he's put together a feast. He's found the perfect spot, the perfect setting where he's looked, and the sun is just hitting at the right place at the right time, and the table is set with all the finest of things. And as we talked on Thursday, these aren't just like, hey, let's just go to Party City and buy candle holders and new candles and stuff. The things that are on this table are old. They're ancient, like beginning of time old. And as the person is setting it up, he's saying, look, these things have been held from the beginning of time, and I'm breaking them out for this feast. And they've been held, and and, and the food is adorned, and everything is just perfect. And so we ask the obvious question, who's invited? Who is is this feast that has all of this great uh, old held decoration thing? Who is it for? Well, there's two potential answers for that in Christum. One, we can say that person is saying, well, whoever takes a seat. Whoever takes a seat at this table, this is who the feast is for. But as we see the language of John 17 and the story of Christ's redemptive story throughout history, let me me paint another picture for you. That when we come to this table and we see the beauty of it, and we ask, who gets to sit here? That Christ's response is this. You. I made it for you. Not, Not generally, specifically. This table is set for you. Now, I know in our, even brothers in Christ, we often argue this term, but oftentimes we spend so much time arguing about who's not at the table that we forget to celebrate the invitation. And so on Easter, let's put aside all of that in just for a second Let's picture the table that we both agree is there. Let's picture the setting that we both agree from the history past was set for the redeemed. And let's celebrate the invitation. That you and I, called by His name, invited to the table, set before the foundations of the world to dine with Christ Himself. So who did Jesus die for? He died for you. Not generically, specifically as a lost sheep who wandered away from the flock, and he left the 99 for the one. The last question that we talked about on Thursday was what is accomplished in his death? And Barr mentioned two things. Uh, Jesus' death both redeems his people from sin and unifies us. It redeems meaning that, that not in a general way, and Jesus as he formed these people that he would call to himself he then redeemed them no he called them as we see in Ephesians 1 but then ultimately he would redeem them in this moment in history where Jesus would be born a baby of a virgin be grown up as a boy through into adulthood and he would call these disciples and he would walk the earth for three years doing ministry but then he would be arrested he would be Uh, beaten and tortured, and he would die. And in that moment in history, the thing promised from the beginning became a realization for the people of God. And Christ died on the cross, and in that moment, purchased faith, purchased freedom back from death. Those past, those present, and those who would come, in that moment, on that cross, sin was paid for. Part of the promise is fulfilled on the cross. The other part is realized when the people who have been purchased back from death realize and begin to exercise the faith that was purchased for them on that day. It unifies us both to Christ and to one another. As Jesus goes on in John 17, He begins to pray for us. And what is His prayer? That they would be two? that there would be multiple people kind of doing their own thing. No, he prays that they would be one. And not just just one, meaning we'd be in the same room and we'd get along. He gives us an illustration here that is very important for us to realize. He says, I want them to be one as you and I are one. That's a standard, folks. The standard is not just, hey, we get along, or we kind of like take our differences and put them aside once a year, and do some things together. Oneness in a Trinitarian sense of oneness. Meaning complete, utter openness with no shame and no fear. That kind of oneness is the oneness that Christ wants for His disciples and all those who would follow Him, which includes us today in this room. That we would be one in a way that say, look, we are all different We are all different parts of the body. We have different personalities. We have different ways that we like our coffee. We have different ways that we like our eggs. We should all like Christ the same. We should all unite around the center of saying, our need for Christ is ultimate. Part of that means understanding each of our sinfulness. That's kind of the buy-in here. As we understand our fallenness and our brokenness, how far we are away... Jesus even gives us this illustration as he, as he heals the woman and says, uh, and, and the other people have some issues with that, of him spending too much time with his lady and say, well, who loves more? The one who's forgiven more, right? And so it's this idea of us understanding our brokenness first and foremost, and that is what unites us around a Savior.